Welcome to The Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. Get it, got it, give it. Here in The Sweat Room, we dive into today's questions about sports and faith. A plaza in the second largest city in Peru, it's called Arequipa. That plaza is at 7,500 feet. And every year, August 15th, coincidentally, the celebration of their start in the city, they have a race to the top of the volcano that overlooks the city. The volcano is 19,000 feet. So I hiked from 7,500 feet to 19,000 feet. And again, I'm not sure the distance, but that was almost 12,000 feet elevation gain. And now here's your hosts, Noah and Bjorn. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the 22nd episode of The Sweat Room. My name is Noah Corson, alongside my co-host Bjorn Webb. We are so honored that you decided to join us today, continuing our Local to Global series with Jeff Crone. Jeff and his wife, Stacy Crone, have been missionaries with SIM, also known as Serving in Mission, since 2002. His main focus has been on theological education in the majority world. They have four kids, and they have lived in both Ethiopia and Peru. Just recently, Jeff got his PhD in Biblical Studies and Hermeneutics from London School of Theology. So Jeff knows this stuff. He seeks to encourage others by sound doctrine, living by Titus 1-9. His four favorite sports are downhill skiing, marathon running, golf, and soccer. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and share with a friend. Follow us on social as well at Watermark Sports. And this is an episode where I highly recommend all of you to get a pen and paper and write some things down. If you're driving, focus on that road. Do not hit the person in front of you. Maybe go back later and share with a friend. Write some things down. But without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Jeff Crone. Welcome to the sweat room. Jeff Crone today. Glad to have you here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to start off with just asking you a little bit about, I know that you hike a lot and have been in some pretty awesome places in the world where there's some great hikes. What is the longest or maybe highest hike or maybe both that you've been on or ever done yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. We have the privilege of living in Peru for 14 years and uh, there's a lot of great hikes there. Uh, the longest hike would have uh, been, well, I'm not sure the distance, but I do know that we started at a plaza in the second largest city in Peru. It's called Arequipa. That plaza is at 7,500 feet. And every year, August 15th, coincidentally, the celebration of their start to the city, they have a race to the top of the volcano that overlooks the city. The volcano is 19,000 feet. So I hiked from 7,500 feet to 19,000 feet. And again, I'm not sure the distance, but that was almost 12,000 feet elevation gain. Wow. Uh, A significant hike. But the crazy part was they had this race, and there were Peruvian runners that literally with shorts and a tank top ran the thing with just one bottle of water. So they're summiting 12,000 feet and within three and a half hours i think it was and then zip it on down to get back to the plaza there's no way i could do that i had a backpack and a sleeping bag as we camped at about sixteen thousand feet overlooking the city it was a beautiful uh view and coincidentally it was a great ministry opportunity because i was with a young man a believer and we just had great talk the things of god of the gospel uh, lots of good questions from him and then the next morning after sleeping fitfully we 
summoned it and, and then got back down. So that would be the longest one. Though the highest one, I was able to get to 20,400 feet at another volcano, not far from Volcan Misty, it was called. Uh, 20,400 feet, it's uh, snow-covered, and it was a challenging hike, though I was able to play a couple sports, I guess you could say, on this hike. Uh, I carried a driver up with me and two golf balls in no. hopes that I would hit the longest drive in the history of the world, knowing that I have to wait to glory to, to actually see the distance. Um, but the, the bummer part was I got to the top and I built my snow tee a little bit too high. And so my first drive, I got under it and it popped up in the air about 50 yards high and 50 yards long. So I had one more chance and I was kind of in a hurry because the guide was yelling at me, let's go, let's go. And I did the same thing. So I didn't get a very long drive, uh, but still it was fun to hit a golf ball at 20,000 feet. Now the funner part was carrying up a pair of skis. Uh, just to, uh, to be able to ski through. There's no ski areas there, too close to the equator. But that was fun to be able to, to ski a volcano in Peru. But that's the fun part. The sobering part was that mountain, uh, on that mountain was found an Incan princess that was sacrificed probably 500, 600 years ago. And she has been found. She's called Juanita. That's the name they gave her. She's in a museum there in Arequipa. And I had the chance to see her before going on this hike very surreal to look at 500 year old teeth but nonetheless it was very sobering and tragic and sad to be in the place of human sacrifice and to look at the spot where she was found there in the in the volcanic crater and just a reminder you know i was on an adventure i was having fun i was hiking but there are just deep and desperate needs in this world that people are dying without the gospel so as fun as the hike was it was also a very sobering experience Wow, that's so good. So, I mean, that leads into your heart for being a missionary and being a ministry for so long. How and why did you get into missions? Yeah, you know, it gets back to high school. Many years ago, late 80s, living in the Minneapolis area, my church had a short-term missions trip to Mexico City. And we had a rather crazy leader. We drove from Minneapolis all the way to Mexico City. It was a long two days. and during that week, just seeing another culture, seeing the adventure of it, seeing the beauty of it, seeing the challenge of it, I, I knew that I'd be back uh, as a missionary somewhere in Latin America. So that was the start. And then eventually after seminary and meeting my wife, who also had the same interest, uh, that's, uh, that was the start of us getting overseas. Wow. So when you were in Peru, where you started as missionaries first, what did your ministry look like over there? What did you guys do? So we went to church plant among mountain villages. Okay. Uh, I thought, I assumed that a missionary with a seminary, seminary degree was supposed to plant churches. But when we arrived and spent some time there, we realized the greater need. And there's, of course, a lot of debate with this and a, an important discussion. But I thought, as did my wife, that the greater need was to encourage and train up the existing church. Mm. Uh, many pastors are humble and excited and godly, yet they lack the training, especially to confront a lot of the false doctrine uh, that is prevalent all over the world. So I saw the need um, to focus on theological education. So I started doing that right, right off the bat. 
And so instead of planting churches, I was preaching the gospel and proclaiming sound doctrine in the churches. Many times going to village churches and asking, for example, in the sermon or the beginning of the sermon, what is the gospel? And many times hearing an answer that was not biblical. So if the church itself cannot articulate what the gospel is, uh, there needs to be some discussion and some uh, talking out uh, what it should uh, and shouldn't be. So training up with pastors became uh, my main ministry. Mm, that's so cool. So for you, what is your greatest joy in ministry? And do you have any praise stories relating to that? Yeah, I would relate it to what I was just saying. The greatest joy is just having the privilege to come alongside these humble pastors that haven't had the chance that I've had as an American male for formal education. They know enough about the word to know that it's deep, it's rich, it's beautiful, it's challenging, mm. and they want more of it. So mm. just to come alongside and, and experience the word of God with them. Um, so many times Paul is telling younger pastors uh, things like encourage others by sound doctrine and teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine um, and point out these things to the brothers and pass on what you have received. And so just to, to be another link in the long chain of people that have passed on the gospel and to have the chance to do that with humble yet passionate pastors. Um, some praise stories, lots of encouragement. Uh, for example, one pastor named Pedro in a small mountain village, he actually has two houses in two mountain villages. That sounds kind of great, but it isn't really. One house is at 11,000 feet where he grows his crops with his wife. Okay. The other house is at, is at 15,000 feet where he keeps his llamas and alpacas. Wow. And he goes back and forth between these two houses. And you may ask, why in the world would he have his animals so high up? Well, the more brutal the conditions, the better the wool and the more money they'll make when they sell the wool. So uh, he told me and he admitted he would much rather not have his 15,000 foot house. Uh, you could call it a house, more just a hut. There's no trees, there's certainly no running water, no electricity. It's a hard life uh, up there. I've been there twice to this high mountain village. And uh, so just to know his life and to know the effort he made to come to our Bible college in the, in the large town. He never missed a class. He was one of my better students. Wow. So this rural pastor with a hunger to know more uh, and then to proclaim that to his, uh, to his people. So many other stories, but that would, that would be one. And maybe just one more. Um, again, we went to church plant, but this young man I was just talking about in this hike up Volcan Misty, he eventually came to Christ through the influence of a lot of us, a lot of our, us missionaries, uh, heard the gospel on the radio, on the TV, actually, TV evangelist, after he hearing it from all of us. And after a training period, uh, became a pastor, and he planted a church in an unreached village in the mountains of Peru. So even though we didn't directly plant a church, uh, God saw fit to use us to indirectly plant a church there. Wow. That's awesome. And Jeff, to give our listeners a little bit of background of sort of how I got connected with you originally. Um, so Jeff played soccer with, with my father in college, and I ended up going on a short-term sports missions trip to Peru when I was 13. And then again, when I was 17. Um, 
And so I, you know, I know Jeff loves soccer. He loves running, marathons, hiking, all of that stuff. So Jeff, how have you seen God use sports in your ministry through years in Peru or Ethiopia or all of that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we spent 14 years in Peru, like I said. We've been in Ethiopia for three years. Uh, a number of ways that God has used sports. One is these two trips that you just mentioned, Houghton College coming down with the team two times that you were a part of. And that helped me be able to reach out to some of the villages, um, building relationships with some of the city officials in these villages. Uh, that was a, a, a tremendous help for me just to get more into the community. Mm. Other how specific did, examples of, I'm sorry, you're going to ask? How, how did us coming down there help you connect with mountain villages and with city officials? Just because it was an enormous amount of work, legwork, before you came to plan it all, to get the teams there. And so I interacted with people that I had never interacted before. Mm. And not only that, but I was able to connect the pastors with some of these city officials. Uh, sometimes evangelicals uh, are suspect. Uh, they look upon them with much suspicion. So just to be able to say to some of these officials, listen, we like to play soccer. Of course, they don't call it <laughs> soccer. And we got a really good team coming. And would you be able to field a city team for us to play? So it was a phenomenal way just to connect pastors, a long-term missionary as myself, uh, with the community. Um, other fun examples, I taught the youth there in Abancay, this town where we lived, floor hockey, they'd never played that before. Flag football, they'd never played that before. Uh, one Bible retreat at 12,000 feet in the mountains, I brought my golf clubs up and taught these Quechua women how to play golf. And wow. Quechua, they're the descendants of the Incas, and they had obviously never seen a golf club before, but they did pretty good. So it's really fun just to, to be teaching the book of Psalms all weekend, and then just to take a break and say, let's go outside and let's try to, uh, to play some golf. So that, that just helped with the camaraderie, the fellowship, gave us all some laughs. Um, yeah, so uh, just the, the chance to use sports in a fun way to build relationships. I love it. So did you teach those people when they were playing golf? Did you, how high did you have the tee? Was it all too high or did you give it? Like, just... <laughs> yeah. So then we just were using irons that time. No okay. Okay. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So for you, you just got your doctorate not too long ago. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'd love to ask you kind of a different question it's, you know, with God and sports, do you think God permits us to play sports? Yes, I most certainly do believe that. And uh, there's a number of ways I would answer that. Um, the body and soul are so important uh, and how they relate to each other. Our souls can thrive when our bodies are healthy. And one of the ways that our bodies can be healthy is, is through sports, is through getting that heart rate up consistently. Mm. Um, the sense of accomplishment after a good workout tremendously helps the soul. Uh, so one way would just be talking about the body and soul dynamic, who we really are. And sometimes we, we forget. I don't know how we do, but we do forget that we are body and soul. And again, so sports will really help in that dynamic. Uh, another way would just be in the, in the world of creativity, 
Um, our God is a creative God, and we are in his image. And we hear about that image right after he speaks on creating in Genesis chapter 1. One way, then, we can reflect that image is to be creative, whether it's in the arts, whether it's music, whether it's literature, even something like cooking. Um, but related to this topic, related um, sports, being creative in sports, uh, being disciplined enough to have a skill to be able to perform well in many different types of sports. We all know what it's like to watch somebody that's talented in a certain sport. Uh, this past April, I was bummed that they canceled the London Marathon because I was so excited to watch the two top marathoners go head-to-head, Kipchoge and Bekele, one Kenyan, one Ethiopian. So I'm super excited. It's on again for October. Just the elites are running. It's going to be incredible to watch these guys. And there's a creativity to that. There's a beauty to that. How do they run so fast <laughs> for so long? Uh, so sports reflect our creator in the creative realm. Uh, and then finally, I would say God permits us to play sports because it teaches us discipline or it reminds us of the need to be disciplined in the Christian verse uh, are what could be called action verbs. Uh, seek first his kingdom, submit to God, resist the devil, put to death the misdeeds of the body, make every effort to be holy. Time and time again, we are called uh, to live a holy life and action. And that takes discipline. That takes a foundation. And as that relates to marathon running, I love marathons. I've only run six and not in any blazing speed. Only six. Only six. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but what I love about it is you, you can't fluff your way through a marathon. You can't cheat your way through. You know, if, for someone who has run or played soccer, athletes, if, if we've done that for years and decades, we can fluff our way through. We can fire out a 10K or even a half marathon. 13 miles really isn't that long. But there's just something about a marathon that if you do not have that base, if you do not have the foundation behind you, uh, around mile 20, you just enter another portal, another existence, and you simply will not be able to keep up the pace that you had before. And I experienced that time and time again. I, it's like I imagine those sci-fi movies where the whole spaceship is just kind of, the whole thing is starting to shut down. All components are shutting down. And uh, in the same way in the Christian faith, we, we have to have a beast, a foundation. We have to know who our God is and what he has done for us, what he has promised to do for us. And when we have that, uh, we can run the marathon that is uh, our Christian faith. It's not a sprint. It's kind of uh, like a little cliche. We run a marathon on a sprint, but there's some truth to it. Uh, so sports and discipline uh, and Christian faith, there's, there's just a lot of uh, similarities. Got to put our time in and can't cheat our way through. So be, those would be some of the ways, body and soul, creativity, and this idea of discipline and not cheating your way would be at least some of the ways I would answer how, uh, why God does permit us to play sports. Mm. Mm. Wow. That's so good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know that really, you know, it enlightened me to maybe a little different perspective. And I, I love that just thinking about the creativity in sport and how that reflects our creator's creativity. That's, that's so good. So 
talking a little bit more about short-term missions trips. I know there's always this sort of um, question mark of, you know, are they worth it? Do they do more good than bad? Do they do more bad than good? As a full-time missionary that's been a part of short-term missions before you were a missionary, who's had short-term trips come to help you in your personal ministry, what do you see as some of the pros and cons of short-term missions trips? Yeah, first of all, short-term missions trips are great and are needed, and we need to keep doing them. How much good they do to the culture there is probably the biggest unknown. I think it does more to those who are participating in the short-term trip, and that is worth it in the end, as long as we're not doing damage, which unfortunately some short-term trips do. So one pro would simply be how it opens the eyes of those from the U.S. or or from an area that is sending the trip. Uh, we are so individualistic and so closed in some ways from the West. It's good for us to see others, to see another world. That's why I'm a sh- long-term missionary is because of a short-term trip when I was in high school. Sure. Um, some The cons would be the lack of respect for the culture that they're going into. Another con would be an attitude of change in the world. You know, so many times we Americans feel like we're tip of the sword, the most strategic. We're going to change the world. And in two weeks, what are we really going to do? And not only that, when you have that attitude, it goes up against a a culture that's very respectful and would never refuse something uh, from a different culture. You're running up against a lot of problems. For example, uh, in the Latin culture, they are very respectful. And if somebody asks them, would you pray this prayer f- with me? Many times to be respectful, not always, but many times they would acquiesce. And just to be respectful, say, sure, I'll pray that prayer with you. But real- in reality, they're just doing that to not be rude to someone who came all that way to visit them. So if a short-term team was encouraging and supporting long-termers and was humble and with a desire to learn the culture, uh, that could make it a successful uh, short-term trip. And the two trips that Houghton uh, had down in Peru, they were successful because they encouraged me, like I was saying, and helped me as a long-termer there in Peru. So it can be done. It should be done. Uh, But there are certainly ways to do it and not to do it. Mm. Have you seen short-term missions trips personally affect your ministries that you've been a part of in Peru and in Ethiopia? Have you seen some of those positives and negatives? I know you talked a little bit about the Houghton trips. Um, but can you maybe share a little bit more about the, the effects on your ministries from those trips? Yeah. Again, the, the ability to build relationships and to know people and to keep building those relationships after the team had left. Uh, to be able to talk to pastors, to talk to the to the youth, um, to see them grow in their faith, and it was really fun. Just weeks, months, years after, they kept talking about you. Remember that team, and they're just being so thankful uh, for having somebody come all the all that way to visit them in their little corner of the world. So that certainly helped me. Uh, one story that's a negative story that wasn't personally. Uh, a personal story, but from some colleagues, a short-term team came, presented the gospel in a number of ways, 
and went home back to the U.S. with these glowing numbers of these amazing number of people coming to Christ, hundreds coming to Christ. Our colleagues uh, were given some names and numbers to call, and this particular female missionary was given 22 names of ladies to call. And every single one of them had no desire to learn more, to talk more about it. One even mentioned uh, she just had prayer to get, them, get the people out of, out of her yard. Uh, and if we stop and think about that, there's at least 22 ladies then in this country in Latin America hardened, inoculated really to the gospel. The most important decision we will ever make on this earth. And yet they may have thought that they already did it and nothing really happened. Uh, so we're taking something so serious and, well, and making it something that's not as serious as, as it really should be. So uh, mm. those would be a couple effects, both positive and negative. Yeah, no, that, that, that's so good. And that really sort of, you know, opens our eyes to see, you know, what the effects can be good and bad. So yeah. talking about some of those effects, positive and negative, is there any advice that you would give to those of us, you know, maybe here in Buffalo, in our community, in our congregation, um, or others that would be listening that are thinking of going on short-term trips in the future? Because I know here, you know, at Watermark, at our church, we send trips every summer to um, multiple different locations. What advice would you give to those people? Biggest advice would just be how can you serve and encourage the long-termers there? Mm. How can you serve and encourage the local believers there? Mm. Uh, along with that, just a deep humility to learn, not to go with the attitude of we have all the answers or to be the tip of the sword or the most strategic uh, possible. Um, just a, a real humble learning attitude uh, as, as members of a team going. But again, it, it's a great way to get knowledge of the needs of this world out. So I love short-term teams. They're really important. Uh, we just have to be real careful on how we do it. So you went from Peru to the other side of the world, to Ethiopia. <laughs> what was that transition like? And how was that on you personally, as well as your family? Yeah, it was quite a transition. Though... Amazingly, it was not as difficult uh, as we wondered if it would be. Um, in Peru, for eight years, we lived in Abancay, so a rural town in the mountains outside of Cusco. And then we lived for five years in the capital city. And the capital city of Lima uh, is very modern. There's a McDonald's on every street corner, Starbucks everywhere. I studied many times at Starbucks. It was a blessing to have. But when we went to Ethiopia... Uh, it felt like we were back in the rural area. Um, it's a wonderful culture in the same way the proving culture is, very open, uh, very respectful. Uh, there's always people walking around in the streets, and people are talking, and it's, it's always a, a stark occurrence when we come back to the U.S. to see the streets deserted. Here in the U.S., you go from your car, uh, your little cubicle at work, to your car, to your garage, and, like, no one's outside. So one positive of COVID, actually, as we've come back, it's been amazing to see people are walking 
people are outside. There's way more people than normal. So that's yeah. really been cool to see in this culture. We're getting out there more. So anyway, to return to these cultures, they're both very similar. They're just open. They're respectful. They love to talk. They love to greet. Um, and that's just a, a, a beautiful part of growing up or spending time in another culture is just to see that beauty. So in one way, it wasn't difficult because they're very open and wonderful, respectful people. Mm. Wow. So talking about Peru, Ethiopia, the United States, these three locations that you've spent a good amount of time, you've got tons of relationships with people there. We talked a little bit about maybe cultures of, you know, closed, open cultures. Could you share or shed some light on what the general spiritual climates are like in those three locations and maybe how they compare or differ from one another? Yeah, that's a massive question. Uh, really interesting. Um, for both Peru and Ethiopia, I would say there's similarities in that the church has seen a massive growth in the last few decades. Ethiopia specifically, from 1920 uh, till now, there's been a growth of 18 million to some say 20 million believers. So there's really been an incredible revival, millions coming to Christ. Yeah. And some of the stories are just stunning of how our Lord has used humble missionaries at first, but then thousands of humble Ethiopian evangelists to just change, uh, change that country. For example, the Italians invaded in the 30s. Missionaries that had only been there for a few years. They got kicked out. They're really worried. What's going to happen to the fledgling church? At one particular place, there was 150 believers. The missionaries sent all sorts of prayers. Uh, Please pray. If we leave, what will happen? They were so nervous, so anxious. They came back years later, and that same church had grown to 10,000 people because the Ethiopians had had become just impacted by the gospel, and they reached out. They didn't need the missionaries to do that. So, And that has just multiplied in many other places. Peru also has seen incredible growth these last few decades. So in some ways, uh, it's an exciting place to be, but it's also a place that needs training. Uh, With all these believers, they need well-trained pastors who can encourage them, train them in sound doctrine. So um, the spiritual climate then would be one of excitement, uh, but also one of deep need for good preaching, good teaching, and good emphasis on, on holy lives. If you relate that to a spiritual climate of the U.S., then, well, that's a great question. Um, I do know that we are often encouraged every time we come back to our home churches that are part of who we are and all the supporters that are part of who we are. Mm. Uh, and I love to come back and, and challenge young people to consider missions. Mm. But I also love to say, but please, not everybody, because not everybody should go, because we really need people to stay here to keep really strong churches here in the U.S. That's so good. Uh, if the churches here are not strong, what's going to happen in 30 years when a missionary is trying to raise support? There's not going to be anybody there that's given to the church, and the church isn't going to be able to send anybody. So uh, we, we all have different ministries and missions. Some really need to stay here. And focus on a holy life, focus on sound doctrine, and focus on their local church, giving generously and helping out that local church. So, um, yeah, interesting question about spiritual climate of all three. But I guess that would be some of the things I would say to, uh, to that. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a whole message in itself right there. That was great. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> For you and your family, what does ministry look like now now in Ethiopia? So my wife teaches at Bingham Academy. It's an international school in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And it's a school that's comprised of maybe 30% missionary kids, but mainly just kids of diplomats or kids of, a, of business men and business women. Uh, and it's a very international school mm. comprised of TCKs or third culture kids. And she loves the ministry to TCKs. And a TCK, for those that don't know, would be someone who's, who is growing up in a culture different from their parents. Mm. And those two cultures form a third. And, you know, as youth, we all have challenges with self-identity, uh, self-worth. And TCKs have an even more difficult time with that. So she's excited and passionate about plugging in to the lives of TCKs. Uh, she teaches Spanish, actually, at this international school, and through Spanish is able to build relationships uh, and to come alongside these TCKs. And this is Myself? In, yeah, go ahead. This is Spanish in Ethiopia, correct? Yeah, believe it or not, Spanish in Ethiopia. A lot of these students come back to the U.S., for example, for college or to the U.K., and since Spanish is a world language, uh, there are need, there is a need to teach students Spanish. It's just like any other school. There are different languages offered, and that's just one language that is offered there. Wow. And what's the native language of Ethiopia? Or where so, you Amharic is the national language. Uh, they also speak some English, though Amharic is the national language but there's dozens of other languages, it, and it's very similar to Peru. There's dozens and dozens of languages in Peru, uh, and the same in Ethiopia. Could you, uh, could you say something quickly for us in that language just so we can hear what it sounds like? Boy, Amasaganalo uh, would be how you say uh, thank you. Salamnesh uh, would be a greeting to a female. Salamno would be a greeting to a male. Salamnachu would be a greeting to a, a group of people. Mm. And that's about all I know of Amharic. <laughs> I need to do a better job of uh, learning more. Uh, I teach in English, so uh, I really need to get moving on, on learning some more. <laughs> so what language does your wife teach Spanish to the Ethiopians? And yeah, so it's, since it's an international school, she teaches in English. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and so then my ministry, I didn't answer that. I'm a professor at a Bible college uh, and just have a chance to come alongside young men and women training for the ministry. Uh, I have a chance this coming semester to teach biblical ethics. Really looking forward to that. It's going to be challenging talking about the theology of work, um, corruption in the government, integrity in the government, female circumcision, abortion, sexuality issues. Uh, so many important issues uh, to discuss. Uh, wow. and it's You're diving right into it. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we will have to. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. And so, as we mentioned a little earlier, you recently um, just got your doctorate and defended your dissertation and all of that. Could you share a little bit about what you were studying during that time? Yeah, so I just finished a PhD through London School of Theology on Mormon hermeneutics, or how the Mormon church interprets the Bible. 
Mm. And it was a fascinating study. It was a challenging study because my advisor asked me to use philosophical hermeneutics, an entire academic field, as a filter through which to evaluate the Mormon use of the Bible. And so to try to know these two massive fields, philosophical hermeneutics, in, in short, is simply a field that looks at what happens when we interpret. What is happening as we interpret? Uh, it's not as easy as we think. Uh, many times you'll hear a Christian say something simplistic like, oh, I just open the Bible and I read it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to that, but there's a lot more going on. Um, where is meaning? Is it in the author, the text, or the reader? What kind of presuppositions are we bringing to the text? What part does community have in interpretation? How about application? If, if you don't apply it, have you really understood it? And most would say in this field anyway, application is part of interpretation. So anyway, taking this field of philosophical hermeneutics as a filter through which to evaluate how the Mormons interpret the Bible. So just to learn uh, from the Mormons and to learn their worldview and their perspective was challenging. Also highlighted some inadequacies, I think, in the evangelical world and how we are interpreting scripture. But that's a whole nother story. So yeah, Mormon hermeneutics was my dissertation. Now, can I ask why you selected that topic? Yeah, just briefly, my advisor way back over nine years ago had asked as I was applying for his program, what have you done? And what would you like to do? Because he knew after years of being an advisor, if you don't like what you're doing, you're not going to last. Mm -hmm. And I'd simply shared in Peru uh, the number of times that I taught on different religious groups. I taught on the Jehovah's Witnesses. I taught on the Mormons. Specifically, those two groups, because they are so strong all over Latin America. Mm -hmm. And he knew enough about Mormonism to know that, that there is nothing published academically on a Mormon hermeneutic. And there's sure. reasons for that. Um, and so that, in short, that's, that's why uh, I chose to do that. And real quick for everybody listening, I'm sure not everybody knows what hermeneutic means. How would you define hermeneutic? So hermeneutic is just a word for interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the simplistic way of saying it. Mormon interpretation of the Bible would be what, I, uh, uh, what my dissertation dealt with. Mm, so that's pretty amazing. So you're a doctor now. So during, while you were getting your doctorate, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced while working on it? And how long did it take? Yeah, so it was eight and a half years um, wow. uh, to get through it. And again, the biggest challenge was these two, two huge fields and trying to articulate uh, and bring them together, uh, along with the challenge of, of being respectful and knowing Mormonism enough to write on them. Mm. Uh, it's a vast field. They are a very literate church and always have been, even from their beginnings. Uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young were prolific authors, along with a couple guys, the Pratt brothers. They put out a lot of literature. Mm. And so it's just challenging to know that enough. And it's also challenging to think about interpretation. Uh, what is a literal interpretation of the Bible? Is it as easy as we think it is? Uh, what is happening when we are reading literature. Uh, what about narrative interpretation? What is narrative interpretation? Well, it's what we all do every day. We don't even realize it half the time. We're just all filled with a bunch of stories, and our stories are intersecting with other people's stories, and that's what Scripture is. It's our story 
being influenced and intersecting with a story of God. Mm. And how does sound doctrine and propositional knowledge relate to that? How does the fact that God is three in one relate to the narrative that I'm a sinner and I need him in my life and I need a savior? So uh, the challenge would just be the complexity of interpretation, the complexity of different fields, and then finally, uh, the ability to write that well. And I just am not a good writer. And my <laughs> advisor, if he was listening, would say amen to that. He really struggled <laughs> with, uh, with a lot of what I wrote. Thankfully, he is a phenomenal writer, and he helped me in many ways uh, to articulate it much better than my original draft. So it was a challenging process, but a blessing also. <laughs> mm. So what has God been teaching you recently? And that's one of our, you know, our motto here in the sweat room, get it, got it, give it. And we talk about, we never graduate from any of those phases. So the first one is get it training, learning. So how are you after being a missionary for you know, 20, 20 years, almost 20 years, mm-hmm. how, yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah. So what, what has God been teaching you recently in this process? Yeah, I would have to relate it to my doctorate again. Uh, it was a long process and, uh, a difficult process. And I've learned that I need a sense of accomplishment in my life to be encouraged and to thrive. Hmm. And to go so long without finishing that doctrine, that, that really knocked me off my kilter, you could say. You would think, so many years on the mission field, preaching and teaching now for almost two decades, you would think I would have learned my identity in Christ, that that is the foundation of my life and that's all I need to know. I am a child of God. I've been sealed until the day of redemption by the Spirit of God. I am one with Christ. But yet, throughout the last few years, especially that doctrine, I just felt so off base, off foundation, like I had nothing to show for all these years of work. Mm. Uh, Like my identity was in the fact that I was an incomplete PhD student. That's all I was. and why couldn't I see the truth that that didn't matter? It, it was a privilege to do it. There's many thousands that could do it. I just had a chance that many others don't. I should have been incredibly thankful. But instead, my identity was wrapped up in the fact that I hadn't accomplished anything. Wow. Instead of just resting in who I am in Christ, what he has done for me, and what he's promised to do. Wow, that's powerful. So as we finish up, um, how can people be praying for you and your family's ministry in Ethiopia? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, we'll be returning to Ethiopia next week. And certainly we need lots of prayers. And the country of Ethiopia needs lots of prayers. Mm. There were some national elections that were supposed to happen this month, but they've been postponed. And there's lots of issues uh, with that. Of course, the pandemic is causing issues like it is everywhere in the world. Uh, There is a locust swarm that hasn't been seen in 70 years that has caused what many are thinking will be a famine, just like back in the 80s. There was an assassination of a local singer about a month ago that caused lots of unrest with uh, Mm. violence and death. Um, And it needs prayers. Um, The country, again, is a beautiful country, a very diverse country but has gone through some difficult times. So prayers for uh, the, the uh, country of uh, Ethiopia. Well, yeah, well, we'll definitely be praying for them. And um, I know that a lot of our listeners will be too. So um, as we close up here, are there any just last closing thoughts, anything on your heart, any words of encouragement um, that you want to share with us and our listeners? Sure. Boy, I guess I would just say 
like these pastors that I've uh, had the chance to know in both Peru and Ethiopia. The word is so deep and so rich. And uh, once you get into it, it just gets deeper and richer. And we all know that as Christians, but uh, sometimes it's uh, good to just be reminded that we have an ocean of God's grace to uh, swim in and to revel in. And he is so good to give us his word, to give us his spirit. And uh, I sure appreciate this chance just to talk about our ministry uh, and that, uh, to just discuss some, some of the important things, the most important thing in life, and that is God and his kingdom. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jeff. I know that I really learned a lot from you, and I love hearing how you articulate some things that you've experienced and gone through, and I hope that it was a, a blessing to some of our listeners as well. So thanks for joining us today. Amen. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Jeff. It was an awesome pleasure to get to speak with you again. Noah, what were some of your reflections off of this awesome conversation with Jeff that we had today? Yeah, Jeff, that was so much fun. Uh, just for our listeners, he was just so great to have on. Uh, just every He's been all over the place. I loved even him talking about soccer to llamas to theology. It was just such a fascinating conversation. Uh, but some things that stuck out to me in regards of, of just the soccer culture on, on all over the world, but specifically in Ethiopia, they shut down the streets. I mean, that's crazy. Like, I I can't even imagine that. That would never happen here in the United States. Not yet, at least. We should try it. Yeah, we what should. do you think would happen is we blocked off the streets in the city of Buffalo with some rocks and kicked out a soccer ball? I mean, why not? <laughs> It'd be a good time. We'd probably get kicked out. But. You're probably right. Yeah. But the other thing that, that really stuck out to me was the respect and shame culture. Uh, that's the big difference between the United States and, and really Ethiopia. Um, I, I don't know. It just that's really stuck out to me. So I, I really love that of that conversation with you, Jeff Bjorn. What was kind of your thoughts of, of today? Yeah, uh, so many thoughts. Such a great conversation. Jeff is such a a wise guy that has so much knowledge and experience um, in the world. And I loved the greatest joy that he has in ministry in sharing the gospel and teaching theology, sound doctrine to pastors and theology students um, overseas. It's just really incredible that, you know, that's what he gets the greatest joy from. And I love that because, you know, he spent, what was it, 15 years, 13 years, yeah. however long it was in Peru. And he taught God's word. He taught theology, he taught the gospel so that when he leaves, they can continue the work of ministry. They can continue to pastor to the folks of Peru. And that's really how it should be done because they know the culture better than Jeff does. And they know the people and they can really connect. And so I, I just love that, that that's the, you know, that's the posture that he goes in is I want to teach God's word and, you know, enlighten them to this is what the Bible says and this is what it means. Um, and then the other thing was talking about short-term missions. Short-term missions had a very powerful impact on me growing up as well as Jeff. And that's where he first was called to missions himself. Um, but seeing the impacts and hearing from him directly of the impacts, good and bad, that short-term missions can have on global missions was really powerful. Hearing about how just having a soccer team go over to Peru can open up so many doors for that missionary to talk to government officials and to schools that 
those are opportunities that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And so just having a soccer team go over can bless his ministry in so much, in so many ways. And, you know, the encouragement that short-term missions trips can be to the local missionaries is huge as well. And the impact, you know, he said himself, like, what is the actual impact eternally that short-term missions have? He's still sort of uncertain. But I love that, that he was still honest. He's like, you know, I don't really know. Um, But also for him being honest that, like, yeah, there are some real negatives that can come about from short-term missions if you do it poorly. And he mentioned, you know... You know, when people went over, and this not himself directly, but the story he heard of people went over, and they had a lot of conversion stories, and as they started to call people, they started to realize that these people, they only, you know, said that prayer in their backyard so that the missionaries would leave, the guys that were there for just that short-term time. And so, you know, coming over with the respect of who these people are, what their culture is, and not being the tip of the sword, white American Christian going over and saying, hey, I'm going to fix the world in a week. And that's not really how it works. But I praise God for guys like Jeff who have committed his life to be over there full time where, you know, he spent 13, 15 years, however long in Peru. And, you know, you can, you can really see that impact from talking with him. And I was there twice, four years apart, and I definitely saw the impact of his ministry there. Um, so yeah, that it, just a lot of thoughts here after talking with Jeff, but they're all good thoughts. And I hope that you guys can really reflect on this in yourself. And if you plan on going on a short-term mission trip here soon, I really encourage you to pray through it. Pray through why you're going and what you're going to do there and really listen when you're there. Listen to those people and get to know their culture. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And next week, everybody, we're continuing our Local to Global series, Sticking with the Global, featuring Nathan Rotier from New Vision Sports Club, and it's a ministry, it's a soccer ministry in Tanzania. Such a good conversation. Here's an excerpt. You have church, and then you have life. So Sunday is very different than the rest of the week. I know there are a lot of Christians there. Yeah, so we're... Where we are, it's about 50-50. So 50% Muslim, 50% Christian. Okay. Wow. As you get closer to the coast, it becomes more Muslim. As you get closer inland, it becomes more Christian. Wow. Um, so it that's interesting because they intermingle very well. And remember, in the sweat room, we get it, got it, give it. Thanks for listening to The Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. 